Okay, so if you were to ask uh, a random sample of people this question, who or what is God, you would likely get responses as varied as the individuals themselves. Some would tell you that God is warm, uh, positive energy that surrounds you like a blanket of good vibes. Others, like Bruce Nolan from the 2003 movie Bruce Almighty, would say that God is just a mean kid with a magnifying glass, and I'm the ant. He could fix my life in five minutes if he wanted to, but he'd rather burn off my feelers and watch me squirm. It's not just the comedic circles that you'll get ideas like this finding traction. Biologist Richard Dawkins, author of the book The God Delusion, writes, God is a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic racist, an infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Yeah, as you thought, he, he believed that he was getting paid uh, by the syllable. John Lennon was once quoted as saying, I believe in God, but not as one thing, not as an old man in the sky. I believe that what people call God is something in all of us. I believe that what Jesus and Muhammad and Buddha and all the rest said was right. It's just that the translations have gone wrong. So who is God? Is he the blanket of good vibes, the buffoonish bully, or the buffet of belief that you can simply pick and choose from to suit your fancy? Today we are in week number two of our Foundations series, and what we're endeavoring to do is we want to revisit the bedrock truths of our faith about what we believe as a church and how understanding those truths will help us make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Today we're going to try to tackle the subject of God's identity. Next week we'll tackle our identity, and then we'll close out the series by spending some time focusing on the example Jesus established in his earthly ministry. So if you were to study uh, the quality characteristics of God or his attributes in the scriptures, you would find him described as light, as love, as spirit, as a consuming fire, as merciful, as the one who fights for you, as your refuge, as a gracious and compassionate healer, a helper, our strength, our portion forever, our sun and shield, as near to us, as faithful to us, and as able. Now, though this list is not exhaustive by any stretch of the imagination, uh, we get a much different picture here in the scriptures than we do in the way that God has been portrayed in pop culture. Still, while these truths about God are helpful because they help us to know about God, they don't tell us exactly who God is. And so today, I would like to make the case that God is best understood as a family on mission. And for the remainder of our time together, I'd like to unpack this idea that God is a family on a mission from the Scriptures. God is a family. Christians believe that God is not simply an individual. He is not a solo act. Quite the opposite is actually true. A mere 26 verses into the book of Genesis, we read the following. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, 
so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Moses quotes God in this passage using plural pronouns to describe himself. When we flash forward to the New Testament, it records God's unity through the diversity of three unique persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And all three persons are present at the baptism of Jesus. Check this out in Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. In this mysterious community, there is unity. And note the language of family. The Father speaks identity while the Spirit descends as a dove and empowers. The fact that all three persons are present at Jesus' baptism should indicate how meaningful baptism is and the level of seriousness with which it should be taken. In John chapter 14, The three unique persons of the divine community are again referenced, this time by Jesus himself. Each member has a role to play with Jesus revealing, God sending, and the Spirit teaching and reminding. Jesus says this in verse 26. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all the things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. You see, God is a family, And this relationship is referred to as the Godhead or as the Trinity. God is one in being and three in person. Now before you tune me out or before you shut down, just, just allow me to try to explain this important truth. Your being is the quality that makes you what you are. Your person is the quality that makes you who you are. I am a human being, and I am Frank Spaulding, the person. I am a human in being, and I am Frank Spaulding, the person. The two are not the same. You see, you and I share the same being, though we are different persons. We are one-to-one, one being to one person. God, on the other hand, uh, is one in being and three in persons. Father, Spirit, and Son. All persons, one God. In their book, Doctrine, Mark Driscoll and Jerry Breschers note this about the Trinity. In the very nature of God, there is a continuous outpouring of love, communication, and oneness because God is a relational community of love. As followers of Jesus, we must remember that God exists and operates as Father, Son, and Spirit. And when we fail to recognize that God is operating uh, through the unity of these three distinct persons and focus on Him merely as an individual, we too will default to individualism and we will begin to live, think, and behave as individuals rather than as a part of a family. Driscoll and Brashear's conclude our longings for love, unity and diversity, communication, community, humility, peace, and selflessness are in fact 
by design, longings for the Trinitarian God of the Bible and the world that is a reflection of the Trinity. You see, God is, at his core, a family. And here's where things move from the theological and into the practical. You see, God is a family on a mission. In the beginning, when the Father, Son, and Spirit were creating, everything was perfect. In Genesis, everything God made was good. In fact, the author, Moses, goes out of his way to tell us that it was good seven times. And the final time, he even says that things were very good. The theme continues into chapter 2, where two more times he notes that things are good. However, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, we see the first thing in all creation that isn't good. Here, we are told by God that it is not good for man to be alone. And so God, who is a family at his core, addressed the not good aspect of creation by giving Adam a family. He made a wife, Eve, for Adam. And even though they are two unique individuals, they were to function as one. Now, does that relationship sound familiar? Doesn't it seem to reflect another relationship that we've already touched on? Verse 23 says, The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. From the very beginning, the family of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, addressed the woes of creation through the family. But as you know, things continued to go from bad to worse. Rather than to live in harmony with God and one another and enjoy the relationship for which they were created, our first parents rebelled and sin entered into the world and everything broke. The harmony that existed, the goodness that existed was shattered. From there, evil compounded and snowballed. Lies, murder, betrayal, and heartache multiplied until God was moved to address the not good of creation again. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, Moses records this. He says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah, verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. You see, when we find a problem in creation, God seems to address it through the family. Inside of broken humanity, God gave Noah a mission. Verse 14, So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. And you know what happened? Noah obeyed. 
Noah did as God had instructed him. Verse 22, it says, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. And as a result of his obedience, there was a, a promise attached. All right? And Noah and his family were saved. See verse 18, it says, I will establish a covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons, and your wife and your sons' wives with you. God addressed the rebellion of humanity through Noah and his family working together on mission. And this truth, is, it's, it's awesome because it extends out through Jesus and his life as well. Remember, Jesus was a part of a divine family. When we go back and we look at Jesus' baptism, there's an important detail present that uh, Jesus' first audience would have immediately noticed a detail that 2,000 years later, uh, we do not. You see, Luke's first century readers would have instantly recognized that the words the Father speaks over the Son are words of commission. You are my Son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. You see, God the Father is sending the Son on official family business. And the really crazy thing about this is Paul uses almost the exact same language, that exact same familial language, when he sent his young protege in the faith, his young disciple, Timothy, to the city of Corinth on gospel business. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, Paul says it like this. He says, For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. What can't be overlooked or overstated at Jesus' baptism is that he isn't operating independently. Jesus isn't flying solo. Jesus has come from a family, representing that family on the mission of fixing the brokenness of humanity. This is God's pattern for addressing the brokenness that we see around us and saving the world through family on mission. Because God is a family on a mission. The Trinity isn't just a theological idea. It's relational too. This relational truth is instructive for us in that it tells us that at the very core of God's nature is community. As we set out to show the people of Harrison County the real Jesus, we must do so together as a community. It isn't a one-person gig. There's no room for solo acts or for mavericks. Jesus didn't operate alone. Neither should we. At his baptism... The beginning of his public ministry, God the Father, Son, and Spirit are all present. It's no accident that at his ascension, the conclusion of his ministry, Jesus instructed his followers to make disciples by baptizing and teaching them. And this is to be done in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Now, maybe I'm just a nerd, uh, but I think this is amazing. I love the fact that Jesus reminded his followers of the divine family that they were joining when they chose to follow him. As we grow to more deeply understand the saving plan of God the Father, the sacrifice of Jesus the Son, and the empowering work of the Holy Spirit, we become more intimately thankful for each member of of the Godhead, each member of the Trinity, for their work for us, 
for their work in us and for their work through us. My question to you this morning is simply this. Have you joined the family of God and are you working to accomplish the mission? Have you said yes to following the real Jesus and have you oriented your life in such a way that you are addressing the brokenness in the world around you? That is what a disciple who makes disciples does. That is what we do. Disciples who make disciples address the brokenness in the world around them. They join the family, they grow that family, and they address the brokenness in the world around them as they glory God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. It's all for their glory that we address the brokenness in the world around us. And so here's the thing. If you've never said yes to the real Jesus, you can. You can repent of your sins, and you can be baptized into Christ, and you can begin to follow him. Now, remember like we said last week, that was going to be really, really hard. Following Jesus is hard because it isn't always predictable, it isn't always easy, and it's certainly not always popular. It's going to be hard, but you'll have the support, not only of your church family, but you'll have the support of your heavenly family as well. If you just need a place to belong, we'd love for you to be part of this church family. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for including us in what you're doing here and around the world. Father, I pray that you will help us to see uh, that you want us to belong to your family and that belonging to your family uh, means that we're going to try to carry out your mission to address the brokenness in the world around us. We love you and we thank you for including us in this. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.